One of the most valuable resources and assets we built as a business was an ambassador program. And so we built that up to now we have like thousands of them. And uh, for us, even just that channel is a seven-figure channel. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why are supplement businesses extremely cost-efficient to get into, how to build significant demand for your product through PR before launching, and what is RFM analysis and how it increased their customers' lifetime value almost four. over the last year. Before we get into our show, I want to share a strategy some businesses are using to help manage cash flow during COVID-19. They're selling gift cards. Gift cards give customers a way to support you right now. We've seen some creative ways to market them, like selling gift cards at a discount, giving special offers for customers who redeem them in the future, and adding free gift cards to high-value cards as a bonus. As part of Shopify's response to COVID-19, gift cards are now available on all Shopify plans. So you can start selling them right away. For more information, visit shopify.com slash gift card. Today, I'm joined by Afif Ghanoum from Biome. Biome is the total microbiome company with products designed to address the critical roles of bacteria and fungi in gut health and was started in 2016 and based out of Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Afif. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the the background, your your experience in this industry is kind of a family family business. Tell us more about you and your family's experience in the microbiome world. That's right. So I'm a biotech attorney by background, but my father is uh, considered one of the leading microbiome researchers in the world. To this day, he's funded by the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. for his research. So in 2016, he did a clinical trial showing that uh, Crohn's patients were developing these very aggressive biofilms in their gut made of bacteria and fungi. And when we looked, we're like, you know, it's kind of interesting. No one's really develop products to address both bacteria and fungi in the gut. You, we've started to obviously hear about probiotics, but really no one had looked at that and what we call digestive plaque, these, these biofilms growing against the lining of your gut. So we basically, uh, based on his science, uh, created biome and developed both probiotics, uh, other supplements, and then uh, gut health test kits uh, akin to something like a 23andMe for your gut. Awesome. So, uh, the, you have the experience there, the expertise with with your father, and how did this? How does it get turned into into a, a business of products that that you're selling though? Because you know, again, the expertise, understanding what the problems are, understanding what potential solutions are, and then actually packaging that up in a way that is consumer friendly is 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 definitely a big a big step, a big leap. What were the the kind of intermediary steps uh, in between? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, what we saw were that there were specific. Uh, organisms in the gut causing issues. So it wasn't really, honestly, rocket science. What we basically said was, are there probiotic organisms? Are there enzymes that can counter the, you know, the bad guys that we were seeing in, in the gut? And so we worked with, you know, different manufacturers and we came up with a formulation that would work. And then what was co- really cool about the test side was that my dad's been doing this type of testing at uh, Case Western School of Medicine here in Cleveland for a long time. And after his research got published, a woman in Europe uh, wrote him a letter and basically said, you know, my two kids are really not doing well with Crohn's. Could you test their guts? And, you know, he's doing all this academic research for the NIH, but something as simple as that, he just wasn't set up to do, right? So we thought, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense that this level of science exists, but, you know, a woman who wants to see what's going on in her children's guts couldn't easily uh, test it. So we said, let's do it ourselves. So we created a gut testing kit and a uh, software portal that will turn like that DNA genetic testing that we're doing in people's guts into actionable reports. So honestly, it was a lot of reducing that heavy duty academic science into you know, real products, real tests, 
uh, in a way that consumers could understand, which is at the end of the day, very important. You can have the biggest innovation, but if people don't understand it, mm. it really doesn't matter because they won't end up buying it, you know? Yeah. You definitely want to talk about your experience and your advice there about taking something that's complex and then making it again, consumer friendly. Uh, but I want to talk about first the, the product development process. So you mentioned initially before the the testing kit was the the the, the kind of pr- the products the, uh, that you would actually, uh, you know, consume or ingest. And you mentioned you worked with different manufacturers for this. Was this something, a process that was, was did you already have manufacturers that you knew of like how what was the process behind finding that the right fit that's a great question so um i had done a lot in the over-the-counter drug space so i knew a lot of manufacturers in that space on the supplement side i had never developed the supplement so you know honestly a lot of it was and, and this is something that i think people oftentimes don't realize that a lot of it comes down to just basic blocking and tackling and i just started googling and looking for people who had expertise uh, manufacturing probiotics that were able to help, you know, doing formulation, those sorts of things. And I ended up finding uh, a manufacturer down in Georgia uh, that was our initial manufacturer. And, you know, it, it really was as simple as filling out uh, a lead generation form on their site and saying like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Can you help us out? Mm. Now, when you are creating something like like supplements, are there, and given your background, are there a lot of regulations? Like what's involved in, in if someone were to again, try to solve a, a problem through supplements and they look going out looking for manufacturers, like what kind of regulations or, or maybe uh, legal concerns should you have going into that? That's a great question. So as like a general rule, first of all, I think people, entrepreneurs will often underestimate that Anytime you're marketing a product, you're subject to regulations, uh, whether it's the Federal Trade Commission or around like the marketing claims you're making, or in our case, the FDA. So uh, dietary supplements are regulated by the FDA. Now, that doesn't mean we don't actually have to get them approved by the FDA before we sell them, but you have to uh, play within the rules of what's allowed with a dietary supplement. So uh, like, you know, obviously not legal advice, but general rule of thumb is, if you are making claims that your dietary supplement can solve a condition or address a disease, something like that, uh, you're going to need a tremendous amount of science, a lot of clinical trials. Um, otherwise, you're, you're going to run into FDA issues. So they are subject to FDA regulations. You have to deal with manufacturers that you know are audited by the FDA, follow good manufacturing practices. So that's one thing. If you're, are, you know, the nice thing about the supplement space, unlike a gadget you can actually get up and going uh, pretty cost efficiently, but take your time up front and make sure whoever you're dealing with from a manufacturing standpoint uh, really knows what they're doing. They're, they're audited by FDA. They follow good manufacturing practices. You know, they have good quality systems because that's going to be important. And especially, you know, if you're trying to grow your business to ultimately sell it, that's also going to be very important because investors uh, which we've you know uh, raised quite a bit of investor capital. They want to know those things. They want to know like who's in your supply chain. Is this you know? Do you have legitimate uh, partners? And then honestly, more and more for your uh, consumer, uh, it's a critical marketing differentiator that you can talk about. You know the quality of your supply chain. That's something people are increasingly aware of and concerned about. You know, so it's it's actually something when I started manufacturing over the counter products you know, you did those things so that as a company, you knew you had a good process, but honestly, consumers weren't really that concerned about it. Now they want to know what type of ingredients are in your product. Are they clean ingredients? Do do you have artificial ingredients? These are all becoming very important to the consumer. So that's something like on day one, if you're starting from a blank piece of paper or you have an idea, you definitely want to work backwards and understand like, how can I actually use a great supply chain as a marketing advantage? Mm. So you, you mentioned that I think the couple facets to this one is to make sure that you have manufacturers in the supply chain that you can kind of lean on that that they already have their part figured out. They've been audited already so that they know uh, that th- things are kind of in order on a product side. And then you also mentioned kind of almost like staying out of the crosshairs a bit from like the FDA by based on your marketing, based on your claims. How important is it to to be able to push the maybe magnitude or, or the, the promise of your products, of your claims. I can see how helpful that would be on the marketing side, but also might, it might uh, invite more scrutiny. Like, well, how do you balance that? 
Yeah. So as a rule of thumb, you just have to feel uh, very comfortable with what you're doing. Sometimes where people get in trouble, and I hear this all the time, uh, you, you'll hear people say, well, I don't understand why I can't see this. I see these other guys over here uh, making a similar claim. And the reality is because because in dietary supplements, uh, most over-the-counter uh, products and even cosmetics are regulated uh, by the FDA, because you don't have to get pre-approval by FDA, a lot of times people will make pretty wild claims and they'll get away with it until they don't. You know what I mean? So anytime I'm talking to a young entrepreneur who's thinking about the space, I always say, like, listen, push the envelope at your risk. But it is a risk for two reasons. One, obviously the FDA. But more importantly, if you are trying to ultimately sell your business or you're trying to raise investor capital, that's an enormous turnoff to investors if they look at your claims and they're like, you don't, you don't have the science to back this up. You know, you're basically building a toxic business. So, you know, from day one, I always say like, look, um, do things properly. Like, and and actually before we even launched, I had a law firm uh, opine on our claims, you know what I mean? So that we felt very comfortable if we went down, you know, uh, a certain road with how we were trying to mark the products that we felt very, uh, very, you know, within the rules. Mm, that makes sense. Does that does that slow things down when it comes to marketing? When you are looking to uh, change up anything from from ads to the the messaging on your website, to your packaging, does it have to go through some kind of, or do you recommend it go through some kind of legal review? Like how much uh, drag, I guess, do you do you put on the the agility maybe of your of your business because you are you know again making sure that you're not uh, putting yourself in a risky situation with with the FDA and any and any claims. That's a great question. So obviously with my background uh, as a biotech attorney, I was able to do a lot of that review internally. So it really didn't slow us down. But I think a lot of it is just common sense. I've seen people like from big companies to even smaller companies where their regulatory review of the business really does slow things down. But honestly, it doesn't have to. So uh, it, it truly is a balance between being like reasonable in, in making sure you're not making like wild claims and feeling comfortable, but it shouldn't take, you know, we're still iterating ads on a you know daily basis, even though we're, we're doing a, sometimes a pretty quick regulatory review just to make sure everybody feels comfortable. Um, so it doesn't have to be a drag. And I also look at it like, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to have a flash in the pan? get something out there, makes, you know, a quick buck and move on to the next thing? Or are you trying to build a, a sustainable business built on real marketing claims, real science or real technology? You know, if you're trying to do that, it might take a little more time. Um, but honestly, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think what you get into is that you can make any claim you want as long as you can back it up. And you mentioned the, the extensive science yeah. that goes into it. What, what, what's involved if you are, uh, if you want to make sure that you're backing your claims in a way that, again, it is not only, um, again, it goes by the rules of the FDA, if they were to focus on you, they'll pay attention to you, but then also honest to your customers. Like, what's the extent of the testing or what's what's involved to make you, you personally feel like confident that you can say these certain, make these certain claims? That's a great question. It really depends on your marketing claim. So for example, if you're making what's called like a therapeutic claim where you're saying, because I, you know, adjust your microbiome, you will no longer, or you'll have like reduced bloating, that's considered like a therapeutic claim, right? So in that you need a clinical trial, which is double blind, placebo controlled, you know, without getting too technical. Um, But if you're trying to make, you know, a claim like it's non-GMO, well, you can usually just get paperwork from your manufacturer backing that up. You know what I mean? So it really depends on the level. And, you know, the problem is, and, and sometimes I honestly feel sorry for people trying to navigate this stuff because it can get really tricky really fast. And an example I always give to illustrate how, like, you know, careful you have to be is there was a lady I knew a number of years ago. She was uh, had a really cool technology that it was basically a cream that would help uh, eyebrows grow. And if her marketing claim said enhances the appearance of thicker eyebrows, cosmetic claim, a lot less science, right? If you said makes your eyebrows thicker, you have to do full clinical trials and go through FDA drug approval. So those two things, the appearance of thicker eyebrows versus make thicker eyebrows, it sounds very similar, but even that little nuance is the difference between 
a little bit of science and a ton of science and a lot of money. You know what I mean? So that that's where you can trip into some issues. Now, again, not to be a warrior war, like, you know, it, it's very doable. A lot of people have built some enormously successful businesses in this vertical, just being reasonable. You know what I mean? And, uh, and a lot of times the other uh, trick I'll tell you is that you can go to manufacturers and say, Hey, listen, what ingredients do you already have that have clinical trial evidence behind them? You know, so you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of times you can rely on other people's science and be able to make a clinically proven claim or a science backed claim. So there's, there's different ways to get around it. Oh, that, that's interesting that you can, that you don't have to get reinvent the wheel. You can, you can kind of work off of the, the work that other people have already done and, and, exactly. and kind of, you know, inherit some of those claims. Um, and you mentioned a big part of this is kind of being reasonable and, and having common sense. And I'm sure it changes from or varies from situation to situation. But if you were to uh, make a claim that then invites scrutiny, is it just like your business is now blown up or do you just have to pull back on it? And, you know, like, is it just like a slap and a risk? And now I cannot say that anymore, but I can keep on running my business or do they come in and shut everything down? So it can be everything from, uh, let me put it this way. It's, you, you kind of don't want to find out because it can be everything from a federal trade commission, uh, fine that, uh, invites class action lawsuits and like your, your company. And by the way, sometimes there's also personal liability and that's obviously one extreme all the way to, you know, uh, an FDA warning letter or just the FDA saying, we don't really love that claim. And again, um, what I've found is the regulators are pretty reasonable. They, they're just making, you know, their main thing is they will not put up with a product if they don't think it's safe. If your claims are like aggressive, they're going to tell you, you need to stop now. But a lot of times, like if you're reasonable with them and they, they don't think you're like what they call like a bad actor, they're pretty reasonable with you. You know what I mean? Like a couple of times, like when we've dealt in like a previous business where um, FDA would be, uh, which they do, they do like common inspections of like manufacturing facilities. And I remember we had a product where uh, we had bought the product from another company and they, instead of saying water in the ingredient, it said aqua. And FDA said, Hey, can you change aqua to water? I said, no problem. Do you mind if I do it on my next manufacturing run of the boxes? And they said, sure. You know what I mean? So like, they weren't looking to like cause us huge problems, but they're like, Hey, listen, this is something you need to adjust, you know? So again, it all comes down to, are you being reasonable? Um, are you trying to do things in good faith? That's honestly like going to be a lot of the guidance. And, and, and it's very tempting, especially when you see, you know, you'll see these huge businesses being built. And some of, sometimes you see claims that are absolutely wild and you just have to be like, you know what? Um, that's not what we're trying to be. Like you, you really just have to kind of have that discipline. It sounds boring, but like, you know, we're trying to build something like uh, that has real longstanding value over time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I think what you're, what I'm hearing from this is that a couple of things that these regulators is not like a monolith. There are people that, that work there and they're reasonable and don't let this, uh, you know, obviously things that you should be aware of, but don't let it deter you from entering this space again, as long as you're reasonable and, and resourceful, like using existing claims from other ingredients that are ingredients that are already in your product. And, and lastly, get a, get a lawyer's uh, advice on all of this. I think it sounds like yeah, the, of course. The, the best path. Um, so one other thing you said earlier was about how, one, one interesting uh, aspect or characteristic of this particular product category is that supplements are cost effective other than uh, compared to like maybe other tangible or other physical goods or gadgets. Talk to us some more about like what makes the supplement space specifically a cost efficient uh, business to get into specifically from the manufacturing side. Yeah. So, you know, what I love about it and, and we call them like specialty chemical businesses. So anything that like uh, a supplement, anything that's a liquid, you know, you can squeeze out of a tube, uh, a lotion, almost like I can't actually think of a, uh, an exception to the rule. They're very cheap to make. You know what I mean? So like a, a shockingly expensive supplement to manufacture will be in like the $10 range. You know what I mean? But most can, you can make for a couple of dollars. And uh, if you take your time, you can usually find a manufacturer that will make, you know, maybe a thousand unit, couple thousand unit initial run. So you're all in initial investment is, is, you know, you can get up and going for a couple thousand dollars right now. You compare that to, uh, and that's what we'll often do if we're introducing a new product and we're like, you know, we feel good about it, but let's see, 
we'll do a test run. We'll, we'll buy, you know, 5,000 units, which for us at this point, is like a, a very small run and we'll see like, Oh, okay. It'll work. Then we'll order a much bigger, uh, uh, run of product gadgets. That's not easy to do, right? Like it's, it's, you have everything from molds you have to buy the engineering that goes into it. Um, just the sheer cost of the manufacturing, uh, it, you know, it can be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to even just get in market. Um, so I always love specialty chemicals and, and supplements because the margins are extremely high. It's a really strong margin profile. And uh, you can get started with, you know, I think our initial run of biome was maybe a thousand bottles. Mm. So a thousand bottles. What was the the first uh, product that, that in that production run? Uh, so we had a probiotic capsule, we had a prebiotic capsule, and we had a colon cleanse. And did, did you did you have a, a a good understanding of the demand in the market? Like once the production run was completed, did you already have a way to to sell this? Like what was how, how uh, did you already have the demand kind of um, pent up for your products? Yeah. So one of the things, the second I knew we were going to launch, we knew it would take us about six months by the time we got, you know, our Shopify site up, manufacturing done. So I had a little bit of time. So I did a couple of things and this is what I always tell people to do. One, um, and, 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 and again, I think sometimes people want to feel like this is harder than it actually has to, to get a little bit of traction. And sometimes it's, it's really about getting the hustle. So for me, I wanted to build some PR buzz around what we were doing. So what I did is I went to you know Upwork and I hired someone uh, uh, outside the U.S. and I said, find me uh, a list of all the editors at the top hundred business magazines in the U.S. And a couple of days got it to me, and I cranked out email after email uh, to all the major magazines like you know Entrepreneur Forbes, all of them. And I said, hey, I'm going to be launching this. Um, I'm taking high science. I'm turning it into in the products, and I want to take your readers on a journey. And I got Forbes to buy in. And so they brought me on as a contributor. And pre-launch, before we even launched, I had uh, done maybe five or six articles for Forbes and, you know, detailing the journey. And it built a lot of buzz. And the first article about Biome on our launch day was by Goop, who did a big article. And that generated a ton of sales. So for us... um, I went out there to proactively start that conversation and it all came from me spending 50 bucks to get someone to put a list of editors together. And it turned into all these amazing, you know, social proof articles about what we were doing that to be honest today, we still use them in ads. Yeah. So this this approach, I think there's nuances here that I want to dive into. I think it could be helpful for a lot of people. So you reached out to Forbes and it wasn't like, hey, feature my product, feature my company. You're saying, let me write for you about uh, the journey of creating this this product, creating this business. Yeah. And and I think the other thing is you, you hit something right on the nail of the head. Zero magazines and media outlets want to talk about a product. They want to talk about a story, right? My story was you know, I'm, uh, my dad's this famous scientist. I'm an attorney. I'm, I'm going to turn his, his, you know, world-class science out of academic, uh, ivory tower into a product you you can see. And I want to take your readers on that journey. Your readers love entrepreneurial stories, right? So I was explaining to Forbes how I was going to create value for them and their audience. And I also told him, I'm going to run ads to these articles. Like, I am already developing an email list. I'm going to be sending this out to people. Like I was showing Forbes, hey, it's not all about me. I'm going to build value for you as well, right? And so that's how I got uh, an initial shot and goal. And then I had to perform. Like the articles did well and, you know, they were very in-depth and I was very honest. I, I laid everything out in these articles of like, you know, the challenges and this and that. And, you know, it, it went really well. And that led to other uh, uh, like podcasts reaching out to me getting a relationship with Goo. You know, we ultimately ended up hiring a PR firm that leveraged all this pre-launch stuff I had done into other opportunities. So it's it's very doable. You just have to, you know, and, and the thing I always tell people, all these media outlets, they have an insatiable thirst for content. Like they're, they're, they need good stories. So if you have something interesting, you have a cool angle, you have a cool personal story, um, you can get, you can get media. 
Yeah, I think I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense about how they don't want to write about a product. They want to be able to uh, tell a story, and you have to come to them with something that is a story that is newsworthy. And you talked about you know your father being a world renowned scientist, and that there's this problem right now where there's all of this uh, you know all of this knowledge that's in ivory tower. I want to break down to your readers. I want to bring them along the journey of starting this business. So this this story, as you're talking about it, makes me interested in, in learning about it. But how did you know that that would be that should be the story how did you was it easy for you to see okay this is the story that i should lead with or how did you discover that this is what would be interesting to to you know to to a publication or to the publication's audience yeah that's a great question so i knew going into this space that there were already massive probiotic players like coming out of just the giant uh, consumer product companies we all knew but the one thing i always thought about was you know the dyson vacuum i remember the ads with James Dyson. And I said, you know, you know, dad, no one's going to have a, a Dr. Gnu. We're the only ones that have you. So that's going to be our story. It's like taking this scientist uh, science and his son translating it. Right. And so I didn't know it would work candidly, but you, you know, you try and you start seeing like, for example, at first we thought, Oh, biofilm is going to be really interesting to people. And what we found was people appreciated it, but it was such high science it was sometimes confusing, right? So we basically were like, listen, you should trust us because this guy has published over 490 papers. His work's been cited by over 27,000 scientists. So you may not know much about probiotics, but you know what we found is our customers will tell us now when we do consumer research, hey, I didn't really understand probiotics, but what I understood is this guy is an NIH-funded scientist that knows what he's talking about. I bet his product's good, you know? Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk now about the, the, the actual act of taking something as complex and bring it down to a level where a consumer understands, understands why it's important to them. Now, so talk to us more about that. Like what was the process of translating a lot of this, these discussions, the, the, this, this knowledge that was, you know, hidden away from the general public into a way that, you know, made sense to people and then made sense in a way where they recognize that they should care about this information. 100%. So we realized early on, this was going to be complex, right? Like if we just talked and stayed in the high science, we we're going to like, move, you know, people just start with glaze over. So we reduced it to a very, very simple premise, which was your gut has bacteria and fungus, your probiotic should too. And then we harped on this idea that, you know, if you weren't getting both bacteria and fungi, you were only addressing half the issue. And that simple sort of positioning, again, you may not even understand why you have bacteria and fungus in your gut, but when it's, it's very logical, it's, it's what I call YouTube logic, is it's something that it's a very simple, logical step. And they, they may not understand quite why it's an important step, but they see it. So for example, I made the connection, did you know you have bacteria and fungus in your gut? Okay, I didn't know that. Did you know most probiotics only deal with bacteria? Yeah, I, you know, we're all aware of Activia and all these, you know, products that have been around forever talking about good bacteria. Did you know that Biome has bacteria and fungus in its probiotic? Don't you think you need both? So that was enough of a hook to get people to say, oh, okay, that's interesting. I didn't know there was fungus in my gut, you know, and then they'd start to explore and then, you know, through email through uh, middle of the funnel ads, we start explaining the science a little more deeply, right? And, and that's how, how we really broke down this very sophisticated like probiotic approach to, did you know there's bacteria and fungus in your gut? Don't you think your probiotic should have bacteria and fungus? Mm. So, and you, I think what you, you, you also talked about here was about how you didn't hit them all at once with this information. You kind of hook them at first and then kind of trickled it right. out to them. Talk to us more about that. Like, well, what's the, uh, the ways that you've been able to get, to uh, connect or contact your, your prospective customers to bring them further down this funnel? Right. So, so one of the most valuable resources and assets we built as a business was an ambassador program. And so we built that up to now we have like thousands of them. 
And uh, for us, even just that channel is a seven-figure channel. But what I always tell people is that the most valuable part of our ambassador program is the way they've taught us how to talk about bio because they are experts at positioning a product to their audience, explaining the complex science. So for us, that was such an invaluable tool because a lot of times we realize, wow, they're way better at explaining this than we are, right? So like um, we approached it by one, after a while, we, we had so much of this uh, UGC user-generated content that we would use that in a top-of-the-funnel ad, right? And then on retargeting, we would have a blog post talking about, you know, what, what's up with fungus in the gut. Then, you know, we got articles in places like Mind Body Green, uh, Muscle and Fitness, and they even more simplified, like the buzzy new probiotic that's got this secret ingredient. You know what I mean? Or like, is your probiotic missing this key ingredient? They would use these little phrases, right? And so we, from the top of funnel to middle to the, obviously the bottom of funnel, we would slowly drip out more information. And then we did things like we built a microbiome podcast that's downloaded every episode it's down now, maybe like 3000 times an episode, which for you know a topic like the microbiome is not bad, but we knew some of the audience, they wanted in-depth interviews with experts. Other people just wanted to understand there was a scientist behind it and that was good enough for them. But most people are kind of in the middle. They want a little bit of it, but you know, they, they don't want to get overwhelmed. Mm. So th- this ambassador program where they are, they're learn. You're learning about uh, hearing from your ambassadors how to speak to your your customers as well. You mentioned this is now a seven figure channel. Talk to us about how this was built up from 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 the ground up. How were you able to a find ambassadors that that would be good representatives of your of your products? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So again, uh, it's really not that complicated. The complicated part is the consistency. So really, what we did is we um, reached out to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every week. And we had uh, an intern at first doing it. And the, the premise was pretty simple. Like, Hey, we have this new product. You know, we see you're into fitness and health. We'd love to send you a sample. We didn't ask them for anything. We didn't say we, we'd love, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people make mistakes. They're very aggressive on the first outreach and it's a turnoff. If you're all, you, again, it's all about how are you helping them? Right. And so we'd say, you know, your audience is really into wellness. You talk about gut health, you know, wanted to share the science behind our probiotic and send you a sample, see what you think. You know, like we're helping them. We uh, looked into seeing that they actually care about this topic. Their audience is going to care about this topic. And we, what we found is that really resonated. And then, you know, if we saw they would post and we'd say, hey, you know, thanks for posting. Did you know we have an ambassador program and, you know, we'll pay you a, a commission if anybody buys through and slowly but surely, we built that up. And we have people that, you know, make 20, 30 bucks a month, all the way to we have some ambassadors that individually, their commissions in the tens of thousands of dollars a month. And it all to this day, we just do individual reach out, manage it all on a spreadsheet. It's really not complicated. The hardest part is just the consistency, seeing who's posting, we do little contests. So you know, mm-hmm. happy to explain that further. Yeah, I, I think a couple of questions here. One is that you, you mentioned again how you learn a lot about the marketing and messaging about your product from your ambassadors. Were there some big eye openers about uh, how they spoke about your product or the topic that for someone like you, a company like yours, where you have a lot of the context already that you just totally glossed over that they just found some way to connect? I'll give you a great example. What we saw, because initially when we launched, we just had capsule products. And when we saw a lot of ambassadors that were parents, they were opening up the capsule and they're asking us, you know, can I just put the powder in my kid's yogurt? And we're like, sure. Well, why do you want to do that? Well, they won't eat a capsule, but if I mix it in, they'll take it. And so we're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So it actually ended up uh, turning us on to the idea that we should create powdered versions of our products. So we ended up launching a super greens and super reds on seeing that all these ambassadors were trying to like food hack stuff for their kids and for themselves, like in a protein shake, that sort of thing. And those products, the greens and the reds are now our number one and number two products, all from seeing this insight of an ambassador, you know, opening the capsule so they could show a, a, a yogurt hack to their audience. Mm, well, so not just learning about how to talk about it, but then also what kind of products to, to develop based on how they were using the different use cases for, for your product. 
And, well, and I think that's a key point is we always talk about internally, like ego is what's right. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, ego is who's right. Truth is what's right. So like, we didn't care where the idea came from. Like when we saw it, we're like, that is a great idea. There's a product there. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like we were like, well, yeah, they're an investor. What, what do they know? No, we're, we're seeing their, their boots on the grounds. This is how they're actually using the product. Right. So I think that's really important to keep your eyes open for ideas, you know, wherever they come from. Mm, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned too that the complicated part about the ambassador program. Well, first of all, I think I want to uh, reemphasize that you mentioned that it's not as complicated as people think. You still manage it this in seven figure channel through a spreadsheet, but the complicated part is almost at a human psychology aspect of it. How do you get, keep the ambassadors consistent? I heard you mentioned a couple of things around contests. Like, what other ways have you found to to keep your your ambassadors uh, excited and consistent with uh, promoting the product? Uh, great question. So we do a couple of things. One, we run the entire program with two people. And, uh, and and I think this is important because especially when iOS changed, not to get into the weeds with all the uh, Facebook advertising, everybody saw their cost of acquisition go up. Our cost of acquisition for uh, an ambassador sale, one, it was a much stickier customer because it was, someone was buying because they trusted an ambassador. But two, it was 10x lower cost of acquisition compared to, uh, you know, our paid advertising channel. So like just incredibly valuable channel for us. So the way we encourage them is we do a number of things. We look at this as like, how would I want, you know, these are not because everything's done over these digital channels now, but these are people, right? So like ambassadors that were starting to get some traction, our team would reach out to them, send them a quick email, like, hey, happy to jump on a quick call. Um, one of the things that really was important is we created all sorts of lifestyle photos, all sorts of recipes with, with photos. And we basically did a big Dropbox folder and we said, listen, grab whatever you want from this so that we're making your life easier to post about biome. Because, you know, if every time they want to do like a really nice photo uh, featuring the product for their audience, that's a lot of work. So we were basically like, listen, we're going to help you. We're going to create the assets, help you do that. The other thing we did is we would do uh, uh, contests around, you know, we're going to do, because the problem is you're going to have some ambassadors that are the giant producers. And then you're going to have some people that they they just try, but they don't have a big audience and they really don't produce a lot of money. So we would do contests based on sales, but then we would do other contests based on best uh, piece of content produced. So whether you had 500 followers or you had, uh, you know, 500,000, the person with 500 followers could win that contest if they produced a really killer video. And a lot of those videos we would end up using in ads or testimonials, you know, so a lot of contests. And, you know, for us, I look at this as a cost of acquisition situation. So we would give them prizes like cash prizes. You know what I mean? I think a lot of times people get very finicky about, well, you know, it costs money and no, listen, cost money to make money. Like you reward these people. People will do things if, if they're being rewarded. And then plain old recognition. Like we do emails. We have a private Facebook group and we do email lists and we will recognize ambassadors. And we've had like top performing ambassadors uh, on our podcast to talk about, you know, their gut health journey. We send their story out to tens of thousands of our subscribers um, our monthly subscribers, um, you know, telling their story, like that's awesome for them. You know what I mean? Like we really put them up on a pedestal. So it's really making them feel like they're an important part of the business, not just a commission generator, you know? Mm, makes sense. So a couple of things I picked up from that was like, make it easy for these ambassadors, make sure you have the assets, make sure that there's as, as little friction as possible for them to create the content and then also celebrate and reward the ambassadors for, for the work that, that, that they're doing, whether that means sales or creating amazing content that you can then you know repurpose and use later. And I think one other thing I heard about this, this ambassador program is that you mentioned to us this too, to us in the pre-interview uh, process, which was that acquisition is important, but retention is critical. Talk to us about how important the ambassador program is in that regard between acquisition and and retention of a customer. It's a great question. So the way I look at it is that the ambassadors, their job in the funnel is the acquisition piece. Now, when they bring a customer in, they're very warm, right? So uh, we'll see because we do a survey after people purchase like, how did you hear about us? 
even though we spend a lot of money on paid acquisition, the number one way people hear about us is through an ambassador. And the, the reason they purchase is because they trust what they're hearing from this person. So they're very important. But on the retention side, it really coming, comes down to really understanding who your customer is. So we, we do a lot of what's called like RFM segmentation, where we're looking at uh, the recency, like how often, uh, how recently have they bought the frequency, like how often are they buying and the monetary, like how much are they actually spending with us? And what we, it was really eye-opening to us when we did that analysis and we could see like, wow, we have this, you know, 20, I'm just making this up, but like 25% of our customers are soulmates. These people love us. And guess what? They're worth 20 times this other group of people that are most of our customers. But honestly, what we found is they're really just bargain shoppers. They don't really care about the buy-up story. It was just, we were the probiotic on sale when they came in, into our world, right? And so once we started understanding through our data who our best customers were, then we started going to like actually picking up the phone and talking to them. Like, why do you love Biome? Like, what was it that brought you? What were you struggling with? And what we found was, you know, they really trusted our science. These were people buying products from some of the biggest companies in the world. And they're like, it's just an impersonal giant you know, brand. Whereas your dad, like I, I trust him. He's he, to the fact that he's a real scientist, like that makes me feel good about the product, you know? So that allowed us to even tighten our messaging more because we saw like, these are the things people actually care about. Like, it, it's funny. We had actually thought initially that a lot of our customers were like CrossFitters, fitness enthusiasts, like optimizers. And it turns out they're like 5% of our, our customers. Our, most of our customers are people that they're dealing with pretty serious digestive issues and they're looking for something that in their estimation makes them feel better. You know what I mean? So by understanding our, our customers, we were able to really, really optimize our retention. And so, uh, you know, we saw our retention, uh, our, our, we saw our customer lifetime value over double um, over 12 months when we started really paying attention to retention. So uh, happy to talk about, you know, some of the, the systems we use on that front. Too. Definitely. And you mentioned this a couple of times, RFM analysis. What, what, what is that? Right. So what, is, what it's doing is it's kicking your customers and, and bucketing them based on three things. R, F, and M. R is recency. How, how recently have they bought a product? Like, have they bought within the last 30 days or has it been six months, right? And obviously, the more recent they've bought, the more valuable they are. Frequency is how often do they buy? Do they buy on average two times or do they buy, you know, 12 times? Frequency is the number one factor in building your customer lifetime value. So for us, that was a critical one to look at, right? And so that's R, that's F, and then monetization. How much are they actually spending this, right? So the most valuable customers have a high R, high recency, high F, high frequency, and high M. Right. And so those are called, uh, we call them soulmates. And then you'll have on the other side of the, the equation, uh, people that haven't bought recently, they don't buy frequently and they don't spend a lot. Those are your worst customers. But ironically, a lot of times, those are your biggest pilot customers because you ran a giant sale at some point. They came in in Black Friday or something like that. But y- you're really not making a lot of money off of them, but you're still spending a lot to acquire them. You know, so. Um, RFM analysis helps you figure out which customer segments should I really be concentrating on and going after finding more of those people. So um, that analysis we were actually doing by hand. We, we have a data scientist and it was laborious. So we ended up finding a great Shopify app named Reveal um, that does it all automatically. And so from that, we're able to see like, okay, you know, these people are our most valuable we got to find more of these, these guys are less valuable. Let's put them off to the side. And, uh, it's, it's been just eye opening and game changing for the business. Yeah. I, I think an important thing to, to talk about here is that there are these different kind of classes of, uh, of customers, right? These soulmates and the others that score lower in the RFM uh, analysis. And I think what I'm hearing is that the action item you take out of this is to go after more of these RFM or high RFM customers, these soulmates and find where you are maybe spending too much, uh, investment in going after the lower scoring ones and maybe cutting, cutting that out. Um, and I think 
know, that's interesting because I think a lot of people would think, okay, every customer is the same. Let me just get more and more and more. But you're saying there are certain kinds of customers and that they respond, maybe even respond differently to, to, to marketing or to get them into your funnel to begin with. Um, so can you talk more about that? Like, is it that, is there a certain point where you're like, okay, let's try to just get as many customers as possible, regardless of their um, likelihood yeah, so, to become a soulmate? So when you're starting off, that's what you have to do. Just, you got to figure out, um, because the last thing you should be doing and, and we're all guilty of it is you, you walk into a business a lot of times thinking, you know, who is going to love your product. And a lot of times you don't know until someone takes their wallet out, right? I don't care about customer research, any of that stuff. So someone takes their wallet out and buys from you. You don't know anything, right? So at first you got to sort of sell it to whoever you think makes the most sense. But over time you start to have enough of a base that when you can go in and, and to your point about soulmates, it's really doing a couple of things. One, I'm not kidding. We literally uh, picked up the phone. We sent emails and we said, hey, listen, thank you. You're like a great customer to buy them. Uh, we'd love to get on the phone with you for you know, 30, 45 minutes. You know, we're happy to give you a Starbucks gift card or free product or whatever you'd like. And we'd love to learn why you love buying them. And we found out so much. We found out you know, what we call... Uh, uh, what are the jobs that Biome is doing? Like, and we found uh, a number of jobs that we were helping people accomplish, like feeling better, uh, feeling like they were doing the best they could for themselves. And that allowed us to really hone in on our messaging, but also to go find more people like that. Like we found like a, a vast majority of our customers set, they're, they're older, they're dealing with digestive issues. We weren't really, frankly, targeting them. You know what I mean? So that allowed us to do better targeting, you know, because really all you're trying to do with uh, increasing customer lifetime value, you're trying to do four things, right? You're trying to acquire better customers. So for us, it was trying to acquire more people that were soulmates. Once you have those people in your world, you're, you have to do everything you can to make their onboarding and their experience great, right? Because the, the, you should be able to help them, but now you got to make them feel like, you know, a VIP because they're going to spend a lot of money. Then obviously, and this seems obvious, but I think a lot of people ignore this. You got to do everything you possibly can to lower churn, right? So for example, uh, in our customer portal, we use recharge. We, we were seeing that our subscription churn a couple of years ago was actually pretty high. When we reached out and we, and we would ask like, well, why are you, why are you canceling? I have too much product. It's a little more expensive. So we redesigned our portal and we made it super easy to skip a, a subscription month. Or if someone was struggling because it was a little too expensive, we applied a 20% discount right there. And, and we saw our churn dramatically drop. And we saw, you know, everything from our loyalty revenue jump um, to, you know, our subscriber numbers just start to jump all because we took the time to understand like, well, what's this pain point for them, right? And then the last thing we really work on is trying to reactivate, you know, customers that have just become disengaged, right? So what does that mean, right? So for a soulmate, soulmates are not motivated by promotions. They love your product. You know, they, we hear people tell us, you know, I would pay if, if it was double the cost because we solve a real problem for them. But your bargain shoppers that they gave you money to, they're really motivated by promotions, right? So even though they're not your ideal customer, they're still in your world. Maybe you can reactivate them with just a rock solid promotional offer or like a bundling or something like that. So the more you take the time to understand who your actual customer is, you can really improve that retention and you can really improve that customer lifetime value. And, and especially now with how bad, uh, you know, people have seen uh, cost of acquisition go up, going up because of all the iOS changes. I, I, I personally believe retention is going to be... Uh, one of the critical marketing channels moving forward. Yeah, and, and I think an important thing to point out here is that this analysis, uh, this RFM analysis to find who your soulmates are, that's not enough. It's that it's just to identify who you should be exactly. talking to and then dig even deep because a lot of these findings that you're talking about, about, you know, they have too much, too many products or they're, they're, or they maybe want some bundling or something like that. That doesn't come out from this analysis. It only comes out from like conversations that you are, you're having with, uh, with these, these, these soulmates. You absolutely nailed it just to put a fine point on what you're saying. Cause I think that's where people get mistaken. Data, data won't do anything for you. Right. So like, it's really three phases. One is 
doing this RFM analysis, doing other retention analysis, really understanding your numbers about your customer. How often are they buying? Like, like I said, RFM analysis, like what's the days, you know, what are the chances of them buying a second time from you? Once you understand sort of step one, the data, then step two is really understanding who are these best customers. You do that two ways. Qualitatively, you pick up the phone and you talk to these people. And a lot of people, they, they don't think they don't, either they feel they're above that or, oh, we're too big. I'm talking about like 20 people. You, it's not hundreds. Like just get a sense of who these people are, right? So you do qualitative, you send surveys out, you like really trying to understand like who are these people? And then you do, you know, quantitative is this, as I said, like with RFM analysis, really breaking down who they are uh, just by the numbers. And then the last is like the action items, right? Like, like I said, once we heard that people were canceling because they didn't know they could skip, well, then we want, when we fix that. So, you know, it's, then it's about better onboarding process. Is your customer service team, you know, helping you sell? Like, do they know about all the promotions that you have going on or do they have strong FAQs? You know, so it's really that third part where the magic is made and it takes a little bit of time is really improving that, you know, user experience, the type of promotions you're doing by, you know, segment a customer. And then these other things on, on just your overall UX. Mm. So, so is it is it a situation where if you are if you discover a problem that one of your soulmates is having and you are working to solve them, does that uh, does that spread to all your other customers? Is like kind of one of these like you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander type of things where you solve a problem for a soulmate and it, this is the same kind of problem that your less I guess you know lower scoring RFM customers are also getting, or can there be situations where it's like counter where you're solving for your best customers but then hurting the experience for your your maybe less valuable customers? You know, that's a great question. I think overall, if it's good for the soulmates, it's going to be good for the entire process. But I think the main point is that over time, you really want your business directed towards those soulmates. Those are the people you should be trying to serve. And it's it's really wild. Like when you do the analysis, like we've seen that some customer buckets are literally worth 50 times less than a soulmate. But, you know, we're spending the same amount of money to acquire them. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, isn't our time better spent acquiring less soulmates, but way, way more ideal person for our business? You know, so again, that it takes a while. It can take six to 12 months to really see those metrics start to move. But what's wild is when you do uh, the analysis to look at like, okay, well, what happens if our retention rate goes up like 5%? It's an exponential difference to your revenue and your profit because they're already in your world. Awesome. So you mentioned a couple of apps here so far. You mentioned you use Reveal for this analysis. You mentioned Recharge for subscription. Any other apps that you recommend others check out that you've used to help run the business? Yeah. So there's the classic ones like uh, Clavio. We really have loved uh, Attentive um, uh, for our SMS. Um, from there, you know, you're going to find, the, I think a, for a lot of these apps from like the pop-ups to um, you, you know, things on site, there's a lot of great options out there. Um, so I'm, as, you know, like just, Uno can be great, especially when you're starting off. Now we run pop-ups through attentive. Um, but those are like, I would say the mega driver apps that we use is, uh, reveal Clavio, um, attentive is huge for us. And, um, uh, you just, Uno early on was, was really good. Awesome. So biomehealth.com is a website, B-I-O-H-M-H-E-A-L-T-H.com is a website. And I'll leave you this last question. What would you say is the main focus for you over the next year? The main focus is continuing to really hone in on who our best customers are. And honestly, we're so focused on building just amazing products based on, you know, cutting edge science that we have, a, you know, probably a dozen new products coming over over the next year. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your advice and experience, Afif. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.